Hi, my name is Pamela Coons, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Oncology at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Cancer Center. I'm excited to announce ASCO's new open access journal, JCO Oncology Advances. As the inaugural editor-in-chief, I hope to support JCO Oncology Advances to become the premier platform to bridge the gap between accessible scientific research and clinical care. Stay tuned for more information, including new article types, at ascopubs.org forward slash JCO Oncology Advances. We look forward to seeing your submissions in spring of 2024. The guest on this podcast episode has no disclosures to declare. Hello and welcome to JCO After Hours, the podcast where we get in depth on manuscripts published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. I'm your host, Shannon Weston, social media editor and GYN oncologist by trade. I'm so excited to be discussing a very important manuscript. This is Debunking Sex and Disentangling Gender from Oncology, which was published in the JCO online on May 26, 2023. So I'm joined by two of the authors here today on the podcast. First is Dr. Ash Alpert. They are an instructor of medicine and hematology at Yale Cancer Center. Welcome. Thank you. And we also have Spencer Adams. They have a bachelor's in public health, are a certified health education specialist, and currently pursuing a master's in public health at Western Michigan University. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you for having me. So let's get into it. I'm so excited. First off, I just want to say thank you because I learned a ton from this paper and I'm hoping to be able to implement some of these changes that we're going to discuss over the next few minutes at my own institution. So I wanted to just make sure we kind of level set and, and everyone's on the same page. So let's start off by discussing ontological oppression. Can you explain to the listeners what this means and how it relates to sex and gender in oncology? Sure. So ontological oppression is actually a concept from one of my colleagues at Yale, uh, Robin Debroff, who's a philosopher. Ontology is a way of thinking about what exists and how we categorize what exists. And so ontological oppression is discrimination or stigma that happens because of the ways people imagine us fitting or not fitting into social categories. For example, if we think that people are women or men based on their sex assigned at birth, then it makes sense that we would think of transgender people and non-binary people as abnormal, weird, or pathologic. In oncology, if we think of ovarian cancer as something that happens to women, and a man with ovarian cancer comes into our clinic, we may be confused or uncomfortable. We may respond to those feelings by denying his identity, for example, thinking he's actually a woman, or using the wrong pronouns or name for him, or even potentially denying him care. And we have some data to suggest that clinicians respond to lack of knowledge about transgender people by treating them as abnormal, weird, or bad in some way. Yeah. And to add to that, when we consider how we classify people, first, there's a problem within that. There's an ethical problem within that. But it's an idea or a construct that a society has created and uh, want people to fit into these nice little boxes just because it's easier to digest or you make the person more palatable if they're able to do these things. And life is not like that. You know, we have differences and we have things that make people fit outside the box. And I believe that when, when we keep reminding people that a box exists or a social construct exists, you're stifling who they are, their personality, their guiding light. You're stifling a lot of things about that person and ignoring something that's incredibly important to them. 
I think that, you know, along those lines, kind of taking that to the next step, it'd be really helpful to discuss a little bit more around the, this interaction between oh. sex assigned at birth and gender and what assumptions are made. And and I think you kind of started along this, like how that impacts oncology care. But I, in your paper, you did, I think, a really great job of, of really laying out a lot of the, the problems that happen in this space. And I, I'd love to explore that more right now. So sex is a designation made when a baby is born by somebody viewing that baby's external genitalia. And so I think we all as doctors know that 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 designation doesn't necessarily tell us what that person's karyotype is, what their later hormonal milieu will be, what their internal anatomy is. And it certainly can't tell us anything about their gender, which is how someone sees themselves as a man, woman, non-binary or something else. And usually develops around the age of four. And even though I think that we all know that we're so used to sex and gender being used interchangeably, not just in the ways that we talk to each other, but in in everything about the way that we do our work. And so it becomes very difficult to disentangle these concepts for ourselves. And we have used sex in particular as a proxy for so many other factors where it doesn't necessarily function. And parts of medicine are based on that. So it's very hard to start to unpack and disentangle those things. For example, the ways that we talk about certain types of cancer can be linked with gender, like we were talking about earlier, women with ovarian cancer, men with prostate cancer. And that's the way that we talk to each other, but it's also in our clinical trial eligibility criteria sometimes. It's in our patient-facing materials. It's in the ways that we name our clinics, the ways that we talk about our work. So then even just sometimes occupying space to get oncology care can be a form of being misgendered. Yeah, I think it's dangerous to conflate the two, um, sex and gender, as Ash was saying, that one is uh, a visual like inspection, the other is who the person is. And if we claim to be an institution that does patient-centered care, how can we be patient-centered if we are not properly respecting the patient? And to do that, you have to respect their gender as well. I see also one of the things that I want to add to the list is clothing that the patient is offered, especially going into a quote unquote women's clinic. We can change that to reproductive health clinic, but usually the clothing is pink and that may be dysphoria causing for some of our trans and gender non-conforming friends. So it truly is in everything that is client facing, that is um, how the structural building is made. It it truly is not just how we talk to each other, but how society runs. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit more about training because I think that will be pretty important as we try to change these things. So, you know, the way we're trained in in medicine and oncology regarding sex, regarding gender, how does this negatively impact the health, right? We've talked a lot about the, the mental health definitely impacts, but also I think overall physical health. Well, I think something that we started to talk about but didn't talk about in detail is not just the conflation of sex and gender, but the ways that this concept of sex is used as a proxy for a number of other factors, including anatomy, hormonal milieu, karyotype, and body size. One of the ways that this becomes problematic is in our laboratory values, for example. So laboratory values are developed, as far as I understand it, based on looking at large studies of people that are categorized as women or men and looking at averages. So averages 
are helpful, but they can't necessarily tell us about disease or no disease. So for example, if a large number of cisgender women have iron deficiency that's undiagnosed and we use their averages, then we're going to continue to underdiagnose iron deficiency anemia going forward. So the ways that we've tried to use sex as a proxy for a number of things doesn't just hurt trans people, but potentially leads to very imprecise data in general. Specifically for trans people, we know that many trans people have negative experiences with care, that this leads to people avoiding care and likely leads to decreased screening for cancer and delayed cancer diagnoses. So we don't have a lot of data about this, but we do have some data to suggest that transgender people may present later with later stage cancers, be less likely to be treated and have poorer outcomes than cisgender people. Yeah, and I think it's important to add that there are physicians who will, uh, we call it like the trans illness, but they will blame everything that you're experiencing on the fact that you're transgender or the fact that you're on hormones or the fact that you had this surgery and say that you need a specialist. So you can't just go to your primary care physician anymore for like the flu because they'll just blame it on your medical transition. So when you take that into consideration, I think that there's a whole host of physical ailments that come from just being denied care. And I don't know if that is from the physician's own personal stigma around trans people or just them not being trained in trans healthcare to where they felt confident and going into that room. So it's a twofold attack. Like first, uh, we need to make doctors who are competent in trans healthcare. And then second, we need to have more inviting spaces for trans and gender non-conforming people. I think the next step really is better understanding this idea around degendering care and specifically oncology. But I think we could talk about medical care as a whole, but let's focus on on what you what you all brought forward in the paper. I, I would love to to hear how we think that this, this idea around degendering care will promote better health care. And then also, I, I think some practical actions like what can we do on a day to day? And you've already started, I think, peppering this through this discussion, but I'd love to like bullet point it out for the listener. Yeah. So the way that we described it in the paper was disentangling oncology is conscious and explicit disentangling of gender, anatomy, hormonal milieu, karyotype, and other biological factors in oncology diagnoses, epidemiology, and knowledge production, as well as, and I think this is an important part that's maybe the harder part of the paper, eliminating sex from our conceptual framework of bodies and disease. So in other words, we're really trying to say that not only do we need to disentangle gender and sex, but we need to debunk the idea that sex is an immutable fact of the body that says something important about a person and their biology. And instead of thinking about sex as this immutable fact of the body, can we really break down and think about what exactly are we measuring? Is it anatomy, hormones, karyotype, size, or stigma? And then in terms of practical actions, I think some of the things that we had in our paper include that oftentimes the word woman or man can be replaced with the word people. So like a very easy change. And actually ASCO and the NCCN, both in the last few years, have worked to degender their guidelines by doing just this simple change. Then we need to also do this on our websites, in our patient education materials, in our clinical trial eligibility criteria. Because if you have a 
a trial for prostate cancer that says that one of the inclusion criteria is being male, then whether or not you actually mean that as an inclusion criteria, a transgender woman or her physician may see that as a barrier to enrollment, ensuring that just like Spencer was saying, that gowns, binders, wigs are available that are gender neutral or available for all genders, ensuring that people have access to bathrooms. So making sure gender neutral bathrooms are available. And often this is as simple as taking a one-style bathroom and just putting a sign on, on it that says gender neutral, ensuring the names of clinics, mammography suites, or titles that contain gender, ensure that intake forms don't conflate gender with biological factors. For example, in a clinic I used to work in, one of the questions on the intake form was, if you're a woman, when was your last menstrual period? Which, if I'm a man and I have a period, it might be hard to figure out how to answer that question. One of the biggest things, I think one of the biggest barriers for trans and gender nonconforming people is that intake form. And it is that first person that you meet or you see when you go to any healthcare establishment, because that sets the tone for whether or not this establishment is trans friendly. If you have, as Ash said, a four women only like box or some uh, descriptor on your intake form, that is a sign that maybe they're not as trans friendly as they could be. Or if you see woman's clinic instead of reproductive health clinic or whatever, that could be a sign that they may not be as gender friendly as they could be. These little changes actually make such a big impact on the trans community. And it's something that I believe would be very much appreciated and would close the gap between trans and gender nonconforming people and the medical community. I know that for me, going to a doctor's office, there these like small moments, although they may seem small to other people, really add up in terms of stress. People talk about microaggressions, and I think that's really a good way of conceptualizing what it's like to have like these little irritations or hits that happen over and over again throughout a clinical encounter. And I think in particular for folks who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis and treatment, which can be experienced as a traumatic event, having these recurrent denials of identity on top of that can lead to additive trauma in a way that can be very distressing and have negative sequela for patients. Well, we're trying to look at this around the idea of allostatic load and, and how you, know, you can actually measure this. Because I think you know, when we talk to policymakers about this around not just the trans community, but also around underrepresented minorities on the stresses that impact their risks of cancer and how it's not just their race ethnicity that's driving it, that it's all of these microaggressions and everything. You get a lot of like, oh, really, that's not science. You know, so I, I definitely think doing a better job around being able to really objectively measure these kind of things and move forward in a very objective thing it's going to help because it's one of those things we know is there. But for people that aren't as ready to believe that or ready to understand that, it helps to have kind of that that objective data. So that gets into when you guys, the, the epi piece around the epidemiologic potential and cancer prevention. Yeah. So in some ways, we can't do much about the data that have been collected in the past, but we can start to think about them more critically and describe what we think is really going on in what, in what we were calling sex or gender categories. But going forward, we can really think about collecting data on our clinical trials and in our large population-based surveys that actually 
speaks to biological factors. So if what we're concerned about is whether or not someone has, has ovaries, we can ask for an anatomy inventory. And when we're interested in hormonal milieu, we can check hormone levels. When we want to know chromosomes, we can check a karyotype. And if what we're interested in is stigma, then we can ask about stigma or we can ask about things that we think may cause someone to incur stigma. And then once we have data that's much more nuanced and granular, we'll be able to better extrapolate it to all people in a much more rigorous and precise way, including trans people. When it comes to cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis within the trans community, it's such a unique thing because we have to consider also the social determinants of health. And this built environment that we've created, this hospital or this uh, cancer wing or whatever you want to call it, is directly impactful, as we were saying before, these microaggressions that add on and on to our trans friends. So I think that when we look at the data and we look at stigma, we also have to look at where people are coming. We have to meet people where they are. It's going to be very difficult in order to like bridge a gap between the medical community and trans community when it comes to stigma. But if we have competent doctors trained in trans care and not always pushing off for like a specialist, then I think we'd get better data. One thing that happens to trans people is doctors feel as if they cannot diagnose because being trans is a disorder that they see is out of their wheelhouse. First, they classify it as a disorder. And secondly, they think it's out of their wheelhouse. So they would refer to like an endocrinologist or someone else to do the care that the person is seeking. And we call it like the trans disease or the trans injury, because if I come in with a broken leg and the first thing you say to me is, you need to go to an endocrinologist because we don't understand how hormones work. That's not care and that's not patient-centered care. And that is what we're all moving towards, I believe. All hospitals are moving towards this patient-centered care. And to, to do that, to be patient-centered, you have to understand the person as a whole. And you have to be able to treat the whole person and then make a treatment plan that is specialized and custom to that person. And that may involve different routes people take in order to feel comfortable or achieve what outcome they wish to achieve. But it's really a patient-centered approach that we have to like drive home in order to um, make some change. My last question is, you know, what's next and how do we get this information out? How do we actually enact? I mean, obviously this podcast, a lot of listeners said, but beyond that, how can we educate people so that they can make these changes? This is something that that is hitting close to home because I recently took over, well, the Gynecologic Cancer Center, which is our place where we house all of the below-the-belt malignancies. But there's work in progress, and we're discussing a, you know, an overarching center to cover breast and gyne malignancies. And there's discussion around how to title that. And one of the discussions was, oh, it should be a women's alongside or things like that. And so that's not in line with what we've just been speaking about. So I think certainly like that kind of individualized, like boots on the ground, people that are willing to speak up and say things and, and try to change those types of things. And I fully intend to do that. Fingers crossed that that <laughs> it won't be just, be just waving my tiny fist in the air. But I think more broadly, I'd love to see, I think more education, you know, at Go and, you know, large 
oncology symposia and conferences because I think, and it needs to go to the people that don't aren't aware. It can't be the echo chamber of people that have already been talking about this and are already, you know, knee deep in this. It needs to be to the broader oncologic community so that people realize that this is an issue that involves all of us and that we all need to be addressing. And like you said, even there's the simple things around replacing the language and saying people and, you know, and making sure that the trial eligibility are broad. And those are simple things that individuals can do. And I'm also, I feel like there's more, you know, like what the NCCN asked, we have to do something more on the organizational levels to really make an impact. Yeah. I mean, I think there's the things that we talked about that we can do as individual clinicians. There's the things that large institutions like NCCN and ASCO can do to sort of send out the implicit messaging that is needed. And then I think in the middle, you know, we can create teams at our institutions of folks who we can be in allyship with to think about what are the most urgent changes that need to happen and the most feasible changes and start with those and then just keep going. Some of the changes that we make now will help us in the years to come. So I think being focused on on the now and the future at the same time is is helpful. I think that the teams within our individual um, institutions is, is really a great approach to this when it comes to figuring out what the next steps are to be more gender inclusive. You know, I really think that institutions should get data from their community. They should understand the makeup of their community and see if that is something that aligns with the makeup of their hospital. Because, you know, we can go and talk about doctors getting trained in trans care or more doctors of color being in your hospital to make the EOC community feel more accepting. But like, if we don't have teams of like, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion teams, or whatever you want to call it, that are willing to push to make policy change within the hospital, then there would be no movement. So we really need to get people within their hospital to give them the power to like really push what has been taught for so long and really challenge the status quo and allow us to move forward with gender equity. Well, I think that is the perfect mic drop moment. And I just want to thank both of my guests. Ash Spencer, this was awesome. And I always take copious notes when I talk with you all because I learned so much and that inspires me to try to do what I can at my institution and within the field of gynecological oncology and post setters. So I hope others that are listening are just as inspired as I am. And to our listeners, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of JCO After Hours. Please do check out our other podcast offerings wherever you get your podcasts. Have a wonderful day. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.